A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mostly Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Baker and cookbook author Cheryl Day may have grown up as a California Valley girl, but with summer trips to visit her grandmother in Alabama, she always had a deep love for the South. In 2002, she opened the Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia, in a neighborhood that was yet to be up and coming. We started out by really getting to know our neighbors. There's a barbershop, Boys to Men barbershop, that's been there, gosh, over 30 years. And we befriended them and started testing out recipes. And once they fell in love with our biscuits and our cinnamon buns and realized that we were wanting to be a part of the neighborhood, they started coming over and that was really the start of our business. Also coming up, we make Umbrian lentil soup and Alex I News tells us why teaching himself Chinese was necessary to learn how to stir fry the Cantonese way. But first, it's my interview with B.J. Barhani. In the 1970s, B.J.'s family, along with 300 other Ethiopian Jews, left Ethiopia on foot and headed to Israel. During their journey, the group brought in the Sabbath with Dabo, the Ethiopian milk and honey bread. B.J., welcome to Milk Street. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Um, You were born in the 1970s, 1976, in Ethiopia. Um, And when you were just four, your family traveled 500 miles on foot to the Sudan. You wrote that you didn't leave because of economic hardship or anything else. It was really for religious reasons. Could you describe that process? So for the Ethiopian Jewish community, ancient Jewish community that been practicing Judaism for thousands of years, uh, that was something that we've been dreaming for years to return to the Holy Land and unify with our brothers and sisters from all over the diaspora. So uh, when the moment came and the elders of the community decided that this is the moment and time to make the Aliyah, the immigration, and basically take a journey, a walk over a couple of weeks in order to fulfill a prophecy, which is just the beginning, walking from Ethiopia to Sudan, uh, I mean, it's really unheard of. She just leave everything you had and uh, your friends, uh, everything, and just go because you strongly believe that you need to live among your brothers and sisters that practice the same faith so you can practice your religion freely. Uh, It's beyond comprehension. This notion of 300 people getting up, walking hundreds of miles over a period of weeks, it just seems 
it seems it seems like a biblical story, of course, obviously. It sounds, uh, it's kind of, sometimes me, when I recollect and I see, it's hard to fathom, you know, the devotion of you right. just, a whole village get up and go. It just sh- showcases it, the determination and devotion. So let's come to the bread, uh, Dabo. It's not a bread I'm familiar with. It's a very rich bread, honey and milk and egg and butter. So could you describe it? Because I think a lot of us are are familiar with sort of the typical Ethiopian flatbread in Jira, but but this is something quite different. Right. I mean, uh, what many people associate Ethiopian cuisine with is the flatbread in Jira, uh, which is made out of uh, teff, uh, gluten-free, super grain, native to Ethiopia. Um, but Dabo is the equivalent of khala. We make it specially for Shabbat. You can make it sweet, you can make it with honey, you can make it without uh, yeast, you can make it without eggs. My kids like to dip it in a little bit of honey on top of it or drizzle some honey in it. So uh, this is how we, in my household, we welcome Shabbat with our special Dabo bread. You also talked about making this bread during your trek to the Sudan. Um, did you find ovens where you could use to bake bread or you just baked it on stones? I mean, how did you bake bread in the middle of the desert? Um, very simple, actually. If you have a pot, you can bake it in that and it will rise nicely. As long you collect wood outside, which nature will provide you, you put fire and then you, you basically have water, a little bit of salt and your flour. You mix it nicely and you let it sit for a couple of hours to rise a little bit, and then you take your dough, put it in a pot. That's the best oven you will have Hmm. in the desert. (laughs) Um, So let's talk about your restaurant in Harlem. I guess a lot of Ethiopian food is, by definition, vegan. But let's just go through some of the items on the menu and and how you prepare them. Uh, So what, what would be three or four classic dishes that you prepare there? Okay, so, you know, Ethiopian cuisine is very much diverse, going from nice and spicy red lentil stew, uh, a bright yellow split peas cooked with turmeric, ginger, and garlic, and onion sautéed for a while. Uh, we're talking about um, delicious vegan uh, collard green or cabbage, carrots, and potatoes, which with uh, a sprinkle of uh, turmeric on that. Besides be having the Ethiopian dishes, of course, we have uh, smoked salmon locks with scrambled egg on a bed of injera. So, you know, we celebrate the many places, uh, people that I've been touched of, and now they become part of me. So that is the menu of uh, Zion Cafe. On top of, of course, the base always will be the Ethiopian. That's the foundation. But as we grow and explore uh, the beauty of uh, Jewish diaspora cuisine, we're always uh, wanting to add and celebrate each one of them. I don't know if you're the kind of person who looks backward, but if I look backward on your life from Ethiopia in the 70s and the, the march to the Sudan and Israel and ending up in Harlem and... Do you ever look back over that and, and think that that was that's a pretty amazing journey? Uh, it is incredible, and I think it, it just started. I have a whole way to go. <laughs> uh, I feel like uh, I'm not done yet. Uh, it just you know it's just somewhere in the middle. <laughs> there is so much to explore and celebrate, and being uh, black. Jewish woman, Ethiopian, and now I'm a New Yorker. All of those things kind of empower me and really want me to keep sharing and highlight how important is African cuisine and how do we celebrate it. So the work is not done yet, Chris. We have a lot to do. BJ, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a pleasure having you here at Milk Street. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Have a blessed day. That was B.J. Barhani, the chef and owner of the Sion Cafe in Harlem. 
Now it's time for my co-host Sarah Malt and I to answer some of your cooking questions. Sarah, by the way, is the author of Home Cooking 101, also star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Carol from Crane Hill, Alabama. Hi, Carol. How are you? I am great, Sarah. Well, how are you? I'm very good, and I'm very uh, interested to know what we can help you with today. Well, my husband and I uh, love to cook, and it's one of our joint activities. But our biggest issue in the kitchen, not only are we a little messy, but we have garlic skins floating around our kitchen constantly. <laughs> they seem to explode. It really is a mess. And we love garlic. How many cloves do you work with at once? Let's say a head of garlic. What percentage of that head of garlic do you work with at once? I would use anywhere from three to five. Okay. It would be better if you used the whole head at once. Put the whole head of garlic in some warm water. Submerge it for about five minutes and then break it apart. I think that when the garlic is wet, the peels won't, you know, float around the way they do. They'll just peel off like a wet peel and that will work much better for you. But if you do the whole head and then you break it into the cloves and it looks like the inner cloves are still pretty dry, soak them in water for five minutes and then go ahead and peel the whole head and then you're good to go for a couple of days. What I've taken to doing recently is preheating the oven to, say, 400, cutting off the tops of the garlic and then sprinkling it with olive oil and salt, wrapping it in foil and roasting it until it's done and then squeezing it out and then freezing it in ice cube trays. Okay. Now let's hear what Chris has to say. I would use, first of all, a Chinese cleaver. They're great for dealing with garlic. I cut off the head down about 20%, so the top of the cloves are cut. Then you can put it on the counter and whack it with the broad side of the cleaver and that'll break off the cloves. And then you can remove the skins really easily by just crushing them lightly with a broad, flat side of the cleaver. And you can do a whole bunch of cloves at one time. And that's a really easy way to get the skins off. But I think a Chinese cleaver is the answer to garlic mania because it makes it so much easier than a typical, you know, European knife. All right. Well, that's a good idea. I have not thought about that or the water bath, Sarah. So... We will hope for better results on our kitchen floor soon. <laughs> okay, Carol. Well, you have fun cooking with your husband. That's great that you cook together. Yes, it is fun. Thank you all so much yeah, for take taking care. my call. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you need a hand in the kitchen, give us a ring anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at Milk Street Radio. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Annie. Hi, Annie. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Okay. Well, how can we help you today? I usually make seltzer at home using, you know, one of those home seltzer makers. Yes, good for you. And I like to add a... Yeah. And I like to add a lemon or lime to flavor it. Mm -hmm. I usually add one or two per, like, one liter bottle, one or two wedges. And it tastes good the first day, but after about a day, it starts to taste a little bitter. So I was wondering if there was anything I could do to avoid this. Yeah, it's really very simple. When you add the lemon or lime, you add slices or wedges or something like that? Yeah, just wedges. Okay, here's the thing. On any piece of citrus, the zest, which is the colored part, just the outside, most outside part, has all the citrus oil in there. It's really got full of flavor. What is right underneath it, that white part, also known as the pith, is quite, Mm -hmm. quite bitter. So that is your problem. So what you need to do is go ahead and flavor it, but just use the very outermost peel, no white part at all. Can't you just use the juice? Well, you could certainly use the juice. I mean, I like the flavor of the oil in the zest. I love lemon zest for everything. And I use zest where I wouldn't use juice because it's got a different flavor. But you're right, Chris, you could. I mean, when they make limoncello, which is the sort of Italian... How do you really feel about limoncello, Chris? I've been there. I've been to Amalfi. I've had limoncello. Yeah. Anyway, they just use the peel. And that's for the same reason we just discussed. But, Chris, did you want to say something nice here? 
No, I just like to say, if you want the world's worst hangover, drink a lot of limoncello <laughs> because it's sweet. All these Italians oh. are now mad at you. Well, no, I love Italy. I love the cooking of Italy. I love the Italians. But limoncello is one of those sweet liqueurs that's... Come on. Have you had limoncello? Yes. And? In Amalfi. And you liked it? Loved it. Okay. Well, yeah, so there. There you go. Okay. At any rate, Annie, that is not your problem. <laughs> just ignore him. <laughs> Just use the zest, meaning the colored part. Okay. You know, and next week when we do the show, I'm going to bring a big bottle of limoncello and give you shots. Well, it's about time you brought some cocktail. Okay, then. <laughs> anyway, Annie, thank Thanks you. Thanks for calling. Yes. Yeah. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with Cheryl Day from Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. That's right up after the break. Her latest book is Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. Cheryl, welcome to Milk Street. Chris, I am so excited to chat with you. I came down to visit you a while back and had a fabulous day. We did. We're still talking about it in Savannah. (laughs) And uh, all I can say in Savannah at Back in the Day Bakery, when you slice a piece of cake, you slice a piece of cake. You don't fool around. Yeah, we don't mess around. (laughs) So this is a weird question, but I was doing some reading and uh, somewhere the, the term Valley Girl came up <laughs> and I'm, I'm going like Cheryl Day Valley Girl. And I, I know you grew up in L.A., but you'll right. spend a lot of time in the South. But um, so are you a Valley Girl? <laughs> I am a Valley Girl. True story. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I grew up, um, I spent a lot of my youth in Sherman Oaks, California. There you go. So that officially makes me as valley girl as you can get. I know you You also have deep roots in Alabama. Right, absolutely. It's this juxtaposition of Southern California meets the American South, for sure. I'll take the American South any day. <laughs> and I guess you would, too, because you live in Savannah now. Right. So let's talk about... Your ancestors, because I know in your bakery, there's some just wonderful pictures of your parents and other people there. So let's go back to Hannah Queen Grubbs, who was born in Alabama in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. So who was she? Hannah Queen Grubbs was my great-great-grandmother, and yes, she was born enslaved. It's still a little sketchy as to the exact date. Um, I'm still discovering all sorts of things about her now, but yeah, she was born in Alabama and started a legacy of bakers in my family. And I think you said she cooked for a politician at the time, you think? Well, she lived until she was well over a hundred years old. So, um, yes, after, uh, slavery, she worked for a famous politician in Alabama and was with his family for many, many years, but she was responsible for doing all the cooking in that household. 
And then your great-grandmother, I guess her daughter, Queen, yes. uh, also was uh, a cook, but sh- she opened a general store in Clopton, Alabama. That's right. In fact, I'm still a little salty over the fact that there were so many queens, na- ladies named Queen, in my family, and they did not pass it on to me. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. You know, it's funny because that was one of the f- first things we talked about when I visited you. Uh, that that sticks in your craws, they say, right? A <laughs> it bit. does. It does. I would have loved that name. Um, so let's go back. You came to Savannah, you started a bakery. I know you tried out recipes in a barbershop. Just tell us the origin story of the Back in the Day Bakery. So, right, the neighborhood that we're in, it's um, it's been coined the Starland District, but basically it's part of the historic district. And at one time it was a thriving business community, the first grocery store in Savannah was owned by a Jewish family and it was across the street from the bakery for many decades. And then the the neighborhood kind of took a turn as happened, you know, a lot of times in the 70s or what have right. you. And it became um, very transitional, as they say. And it was pretty much a place that no one in their right mind would want to open up a business. <laughs> except but apparently, for. except for, uh, except for Griff and I, who we had grown up in large cities, um, and he's from Minneapolis. I'm from Los Angeles, and we really just saw such great potential in this neighborhood. And we started out by really getting to know our neighbors. There's a barber shop, Boys to Men Barber Shop, that's been there, gosh, over 30 years. And we befriended them and started testing out recipes. And once they fell in love with our biscuits and our cinnamon buns and realized that we were opening a business that was wanting to be a part of the neighborhood, they started coming over. And that was really the start of our business. So, yeah, I just think of ways to just really make a human connection. And I think it, I know it's important. You, you talk about cookbooks actually were fronted, if you will, by mostly white women. But as you say, history is written by the victors. And right. so, so many of those recipes obviously came from black cooks. Right. And they ended up in books where they really didn't get any credit. Do you think that was especially true in the South or that's across the country or what's your experience with that? Um, Well, I mean, I think that it's definitely in the South. That's obviously my wheelhouse. But I know for a fact that it has been the case in other parts of the country as well. In fact, um, it's come out now that one of the first black women that wrote a cookbook she was in Michigan. But I mean, I think that definitely, you know, a lot of recipes came through the South. And yeah, unfortunately, if if you couldn't read or write, I mean, how are you going to tell that story? But they were the ones in the kitchen making the food. So I guess I am making a very bold statement and making sure that I pay homage to these women. Right. So before we get to recipes with some of these recipes are fascinating, but let's talk about baking rules. Um, okay. The one thing that people get wrong more than anything else in baking is the temperature of butter, right? Cause it doesn't cream if it's over 70 degrees. So I've been trying to explain this to people for a long time, but if you don't have a thermometer, like an instant read thermometer, how do you tell people when the butter's at the right temperature for creaming? So I tell people it should have an indentation. It looks not greasy, but it's a little bit pliable because it really does make a difference. However, I have to say, um, and I know this is a conversation that's very um, controversial, whether you can start with, with cold butter, but I have discovered over the years that you actually can start with cold cubed butter, right. but you then have to get it up 
you know, to temperature. So the only reason why I use that technique sometimes is because in Savannah, Georgia, it's often very hot. <laughs> and in the summer, it's extremely hot. And sometimes it's almost like a reverse method that you, right. you know, that you use to get the butter to the proper temperature rather than getting it too soft where it's melty and then your butter is not going to do be able to do its job. And the question that we actually talked about when I was there, but the, which I think I told you one of my kids used to bake for a living. Yes. And she'd call me all the time and go, Dad, how do I know when it's done? Oh, and, yeah. And I, I have about 68 different answers to that question. I bet you do. But, but what are your half dozen answers? I think as a baker, if you make things time and time again, it really is about standing there and watching and seeing what happens and making notes and seeing, you know, does it rise? Does it fall? So for cookies, that's kind of my technique for cakes. I definitely, it depends on the type of cake. You know, there's a theory that it does need to come out clean. I think you don't want a cake to be wet, but a little tiny bit of crumb is fine because, again, it's going to continue to bake. Uh, Another way is touching the top to make sure that it it does bounce back. If you're watching it, you'll see that when it's baking, it starts to pull away from the sides of the pan. It domes, and then you're just kind of – it's this tactile. Baking is very much about, you know, touching and feeling and – looking and it's it's using all of your senses well i think you said to me that like 30 seconds in baking is an eternity right i mean i think people don't realize that like a minute is a long time right especially for cookies yeah a minute is like a lifetime (laughs) a minute can be burnt right so let's talk about biscuits uh this is like talking about hummus in the Middle East, right? You want to get into a fight, tell people, you know, the best <laughs> way to make a biscuit, a southern biscuit. So they're, you know, layered biscuits. They're kind of, you know, white lily flour, cakey biscuits. They're mm-hmm. um, all sorts of biscuits, cream biscuits. You you have a bunch of them in your book. Is there a particular style that you think is the southern biscuit or there's just a lot of styles? Well, there's a saying, I think I, I say it in the, cookbook is how many grandmothers are there that's how many biscuits there are I mean you know there's just so many methods I think I have four and I could have gone on and on and I love them all and it just kind of depends there's one method that is really simple and you don't have to cut the biscuits and I think a lot of folks that are Novice bakers love to start with that recipe. I call it a biscone at the bakery, but it's like a cat head biscuit that is really simple to make. You mix it in one bowl and then you scoop it out and you're done. So it's a it's a drop biscuit, essentially? Yeah, essentially yeah. it is a, a drop biscuit. I mean, so super simple to make. And then the one that probably, I think for my new cookbook, it's like buy the cookbook for the flaky buttermilk biscuits, but stay for the chocolate cake (laughs) (laughs) is, you know, one that is more complex. You're going to be, you know, mixing it. You're going to be cutting it. You're going to be stacking and folding it. And, and that's how you get that very flaky layered biscuit. Cold oven pound cake. I ran across this years ago, but I noticed you have that in the book. So you actually put that into a cold oven, right? And Yeah. And I mean, people look at me like, wait a minute. <laughs> How do you bake a cake in a cold oven? But it starts in a cold oven. Then you turn on the oven. And I like to just stand there, turn on the light and stare at it. And it slowly rises so it doesn't get dried out. And the texture of it is just sublime, I think. It's just delicious. Didn't someone tell you when you first moved... Your cupcakes weren't sweet enough, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I used to, when I, we first opened, I was determined I was making a Italian meringue buttercream on my cupcakes, and they were not well-received <laughs> at all. How, how does a Southerner 
tell you they don't like your cupcake? <laughs> is it subtle? Um, I didn't think it was that subtle, actually. It was kind of like, you know, what do you use exactly? <laughs> and, you know, there's the old saying, bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> and if you live in the South, you know what that means. <laughs> uh, recipes, um, you, you talk a lot about how recipes were passed down. They were cherished, especially, I think, in the South, but also... I know in New England, I have recipes that were passed down to me. Could you just talk about that? That just seems like such a personal and wonderful thing and probably isn't done very much anymore. Yeah, I think I've always said that bakers are the sweetest folks on earth. And you always want to know the best baker in your community, your, whether it's your aunt or a neighbor or someone that you go to church with. And I know that back in the day, it was a, a big tradition that folks would share a recipe or often they would have these like uh, showers where they would gift recipes to the bride or I don't know. I just think it's just a, a wonderful tradition that I wish we still would do. I actually still do that. I have often gifted a wedding cake or special cakes for occasions and often sad occasions because I think it's just, again, it's just such a human connection that is very important, especially in these days. So we started this conversation with your beginnings in L.A. and also in Alabama. Um, could you give us, I mean, I could go on forever about small town Vermont because that's my background, but could you go and, and just explain to us what you deeply love about where you live now? I mean, that makes it so unique. Yeah, I love just the fact that I can hear myself think <laughs> when I walk down the street. I like the fact that people look you in the eye and say hello and, and you get to know people. But I just love um, the pace. I think the pace fits with me. At this point in my life, it's just the slower pace, and I rather enjoy it. Was the move from L.A. for you an easy transition? Because you obviously had a lot of family in Alabama for generations. Or, I mean, did you feel right at home, or did it take a long time to immerse yourself in Savannah? No, I did not feel right at home. (laughs) Um, I did not. (laughs) Um, That's why when we opened the bakery, we wanted to uh, let folks know that we were here to stay and we weren't just coming in, you know, we wanted to be an integral part of the community. And, but it definitely took time. I mean, when we first opened, we'd get looks from people trying to figure out, you know, they would say very subtly, you know, are you from here? But I talked, you know, I called everyone you guys and I talked a little funny. But so, yeah, it definitely took a while. But here I am. (laughs) Cheryl, um, great to visit with you again. Love your food and love your new cookbook. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was baker and cookbook author Cheryl Day from Back in the Day Bakery in Savannah, Georgia. Her latest book is Cheryl Day's Treasury of Southern Baking. You know, Cheryl told me that with the advent of COVID, she and her husband Griff decided to cut back on business and make more time for other things in life. You know, we always talk about time well spent as if time can be spent foolishly. But what if indeed you can't spend time Time is simply a way for humans to try to understand existence. In that case, every moment is perhaps infinite, and by living in the moment, you never really run out of time. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, Umbrian Lentil Soup. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So today we're talking lentil soup, something you can find not all over the world, but over a good part of the world. Mm-hmm. I had it in Israel cooked with pasta, but you had this one in Italy, and it's a little different than anything I've ever had before. Yeah, you know, and I got to tell you, I'm generally not a fan of lentils, but this lentil soup blew me away. I loved it, and it was so simple. Of course, it starts with great ingredients. We're in Italy. 
And I was working with a home cook, Sylvia Butoni. And yes, it's that Butoni family, although they no longer own the pasta company. And, you know, we were just outside of Perugia. And she wanted to introduce me to kind of the really rustic cooking of Umbria, the region we were in. And Umbria is known for its lentils, its Castelluccio lentils. They are small, kind of greenish-gray, and much like lentils de poi from France, they hold their shape really well when cooked. So these are all the usual suspects you'd find, you know, carrots, onion, etc.? Yeah. She starts by creating a very simple flavor base, onion, celery, carrots, a little bit of salt, cook that in some oil until they're just starting to get tender and brown, develop a little bit of flavor, throw some garlic in, and then a trick that we love at Milk Street, she throws in tomato paste and browns it, really bringing out those rich, sweet umami flavors in the tomato paste. And then she adds water and the lentils, some rosemary, of course, some red pepper flakes, brings the whole thing to a simmer. And what I loved about this, too, is, first of all, it cooked in minutes, I should say, but she didn't use as much water as you might think for a soup, so it ends up being... I don't want to call it a stew, but it's certainly thicker than you would consider a typical soup. It came together in minutes. She serves it drizzled with a little bit more olive oil, of course, and sprinkled with some Parmigiano, of course. And the result is really magical. Again, I don't like lentils. I loved this lentil soup. Every time you go to Italy, you discover things you never thought you'd discover, right? I mean, lentil soup does not sound like a thrill a minute, right? We've done no, this before. exactly. But in fact... <laughs> The basics are better than you remember, right? This is why we always go back to Italy, because they continue to educate us about how if you take simple ingredients and prepare them in a simple way, but really let those ingredients shine, if you're mindful of contrasting tastes and textures and you combine those ingredients, you're going to get an end result that far outweighs what you thought going into the equation. It really just, as ever, it blew me away. Umbrian lentil soup, it's a classic but it's something that helps us understand a little bit more about the joys of Italian cooking. J.M., thank you so much. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Umbrian lentil soup at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex I News tells us how to stir-fry the Cantonese way. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hiya, this is Marisha. How can we help you today? Recently, I purchased a Hungarian hot wax pepper because I thought that sounded fun. And I have a decent-sized pepper growing now, but I actually have no idea what to use it for. Oh, okay. You mean you've got a plant and it's thriving and you're getting all sorts of peppers. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. That's right. I like to make hot sauces with my peppers, but I wasn't quite sure what flavor profile to really use with that. Well, Hungarian wax peppers, they're usually harvested when they're yellow, although they can get red if you leave them on. And the longer you leave them on the plant, the hotter they get. But they're often confused with banana peppers because they look alike. However, mm -hmm. they are hotter than banana peppers. They're roughly the equivalent of a jalapeno. Okay. So that sort of gives you an idea of what you're dealing with as long as you harvest them yellow. If you take them till red, they will be hotter. You know, I think that you could use them in any recipe. You would use jalapeno, and they'd be very nice. And as for a hot pepper sauce, Chris, I think there was one recently in... Uh, in the Baja sauce? Yeah. No, I make that. It's great with fish, grilled fish. Do you think that would work with this chili? Yeah, I've only had this once or twice, but it's very fruity, which, you know, is, is my big revelation years ago about chili Chilies peppers. are not just hot. They're about flavor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they'd be great in mole. They'd be great in this hot pepper sauce. I have to say, though, go buying a plant before you know what to do with it. <laughs> It's kind of like having kids because yeah. then you have kids and you go like, what am I going to do with them? I mean, really? So it's very similar. So good for you. Yeah. Hey, wonderful. All right, Marisha. Thanks for calling. Yes. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. 
you're stuck in a rut, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or you can email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, hi, this is Tim. How can we help you? My question is about pizza dough. I've really like settled on this method where I can use my uh, grill and almost get it like a wood fire oven kind of a situation. Right. But I found that like when I'm making my dough, the results are really varied in terms of the consistency of the dough. It's equal parts, all purpose flour and double zero flour, a little bit of salt, some warm water, just under a teaspoon of active yeast, a little bit of olive oil. And then, yeah, I put it in my stand mixer with the dough hook. Yeah. Let that go for a couple minutes, then you let it rest, then you let it go a couple more minutes, and then I let it sit for like three or four hours under a uh, dampened cloth. Why are you using all-purpose flour instead of bread flour? Let's start with that. That's the recipe I came across, and this one kind of came closest to getting this kind of nice springy dough. I would use bread flour. The other thing I find, and this is based on a recipe we got from Bari, Italy, for focaccia. Mm -hmm. He uses a ton of yeast in his recipe. When I made it just two days ago, I used a whole package of yeast. Uh How long do you let it rise after you divided it? Three or four hours. Is it warm in your kitchen when you do this? I mean, the dough's very relaxed and and easy to deal with. I'm in Texas, so it's usually a moderate (laughs) temperature. Sometimes, like, after it's done that four hours, It's just like really soft and just really wonderful to kind of work with. I'll form it with my hands and then kind of toss it on my knuckles a little bit. But other times, it's just like really springing back on me. It doesn't want to hold a shape. So you're letting the entire recipe rise. Yeah. And then you are segmenting it into two balls and letting those rise separately. Yes. And the total time is four hours for the entire process, the first and second part. The first part, I spin it with the dough hook for like three minutes, and then you do a 15-minute rest. Then I spin it for three minutes again, and then it's the four-hour. You're weighing the flour, or are you measuring the flour? I'm measuring the flour, though the recipe does have it by weight. Should I be doing that? Yes. You should. That might be the problem right there. Chris is actually the pizza expert, but when you say sometimes it's very soft and sometimes it's very springy, I can only think that sometimes you probably have more flour. Absolutely go with the weight, not with the measure, because nobody measures the same way every time. Also look at the hydration. I mean, in general, a wetter dough is going to give you a nicer pizza. The texture's better. I don't Mm -hmm. know how many grams of flour you had versus grams of water. But if you're around 60 or 65%, you might want to punch that up and add a little more water. Okay. So if it's not flexible, you probably should just be adding some more water. The only last thing I would say is when I did it a couple days ago, I actually let the dough sit for hours. This guy in Bari, Italy did the same thing. He let his dough rest for like six hours. My conclusion is if the dough's warm, like 75 degrees, Mm -hmm. which is really critical, it almost can't overproof. You can let it sit... When it's not easy to work with, it probably hasn't sat long enough, or it's not warm enough, or it's not wet enough. So those are my totally confusing No, that all makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, good luck. Take care. Yeah. Okay, appreciate it. Bye. Bye. This is Most Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary wisdom from one of our listeners. Hi, this is Anthony Arquino from Montpelier, Vermont, and I find that the 12 ounces of pasta called for in most Milk Street recipes is the perfect amount for four people. Only problem is, pasta in the United States is sold usually in 16-ounce packages. What to do with the extra four ounces? I find that that leftover pasta is the perfect amount to toss in at the end of a soup like a minestrone. Make sure that you wait till late in the cooking process and make sure that you pull the soup off the heat early enough because the pasta can absorb a lot of extra liquid after cooking. Happy cooking! By the way, if you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's French food scientist Alex Inews. 
Alex, how are you? And uh, what's up in Paris? Oh, I'm good, Chris. How are you? You've been uh, working hard, I guess, right? Exactly. I've been working hard. You know, I'm uh, always experimenting with new things. And uh, I've been facing a problem. I'm, I'm a father confessor. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so recently, I really wanted to learn stir-fry. Okay, I had this interest, deep interest for fried rice. And right. fried rice can only be accomplished through proper understanding of the stir-fry motion. Mm-hmm. I wanted to learn the Cantonese stir-fry motion. And there are no resources online for me to be able to learn that specific motion. Nothing. I didn't know that there was a specific Cantonese motion. What, what is that? Well, there is one. There is one. First of all, you need to understand the gears you use to make stir-fry. You know, you use a wok, you use a high-pressure burner, but the Cantonese wok is pretty different from the classic wok. So let me just describe it. The Cantonese wok is usually wider and it has short handles, two short handles, like ears uh, on opposite ends, where the classic wok that we are most familiar with has a long handle and is usually smaller. Uh, the reason why I wanted to learn the Cantonese version of the stir-fry motion is that, that that's the one that's used in restaurants most of the time, I would say. And it looks cooler, let's face it. Oh, uh, wait, wait, okay, so now we're getting to the, the heart of it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. I want to wear sunglasses in the kitchen, <laughs> and I want to be an OG Cantonese master chef. I mean, everybody has different dreams, these are mine. That's okay? yours, okay. Exactly, so, so I thought, what do I need to do? And then I realized, well, if that's a Cantonese thing, why do I go to where Cantonese people post their content? So I basically looked for the Chinese equivalent of YouTube, hmm. which happens to be a website called Bilibili. I managed to find the food section, but there are like millions of videos there. Then I, I was facing another problem. I just need to learn how to speak Mandarin. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be my natural inclination, too. (laughs) So I took my phone, and I installed Duolingo. And I started practicing, you know, like, Ni hao, wo ming su chao Alex, wo chu mian. But it didn't go super far. But I guess it it went far enough so that at some point, I was able to find the right wording. Fang guo means stir-fry. Believe it or not, it took me a while to find that. A while. (laughs) Then I took these characters and I typed them in Bilibili and I found amazing content done by MasterChef from China and I've never ever seen these guys in my life. Hmm. One chef called Sai Guanjiang, this guy, pretty relaxed, pretty cool, he taught me about the importance of the grip when you're trying to do the Cantonese stir-fry. Short handles, meaning that the leverage of your hand is tiny, but the leverage of the wok is enormous. So there's a very specific way to hold the handle. You have to stick your thumb inside the handle and to use a kitchen towel that is folded in a very specific way. And I was able at least to hold the wok properly. That was step one. Step two out of three. I've I've discovered this guy called Chef Meishi Xuanyang This guy taught me how to rock the wok. Hmm. You see, with a normal wok, with the long handle, you can lift up the wok pretty easily in the air. So you could be stir-frying, you know, pan-tossing in the air. With a Cantonese wok, you cannot do that. So this guy says that you need to use the stove. The edge of the stove is like a pivot point that you need to use and Hmm. you need to slide the wok forward and backward, but also downwards and upwards. Hmm. Can, can I ask you a dumb question? Yes. Why don't you just buy a walk with a long handle? Because I can't do that. <laughs> I can't do that. Just ask it. It's, it's not clicking okay. with my brain. My brain doesn't okay. work like this. Okay. 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 When I You're committed. Yeah, exactly. I'm committed. So, And also, if you want to cook for a crowd, for example, yeah. uh, Cantonese will come in all different sizes where... The northern style woks, the one with the, the long handle, they only come in like small to medium sizes. Right. Okay. So basically, this guy told me how to rock the wok and how to 
you know, get this movement, this back and forth movement inside my body. So I practiced a lot. And at some point I thought I had it. But then I started having aches in my arm. My, my wrist was hurting and my, and my shoulder as well. So I started doing research on this. And there is, believe it or not, there's actually a video on bilibili.com by a chef called Zihao who talks about core strength and its importance in the stir-fry movement. I thought you were going to end up at an acupuncture site. I could. <laughs> I could. Where this was going to go. That was the second option. <laughs> so this guy basically tells us, if I'm only using my arm, I got no strength in the stir-fry motion. I should be use using my body. body. Yeah, Eggs. Of course. You got it, Chris. I, I knew it. Yeah, I, I should it. have called you. You called me a month ago. <laughs> yeah, I told you. Why am I installing all these stupid apps know. on my phone? <laughs> Anyways, this guy just tells exactly what you just said. Use your body. Use your back. Right. Bounce your whole body instead of just your, your arm. Yeah. It, it's, it sounds a bit philosophical almost, but it does work. So I've been using this advice along with the first two ones. And now I would say that I know how to stir fry. I'm not like a Cantonese master chef, but, you know, like a Cantonese cook, maybe. Well, the only problem is now you have to make eight new friends and have them over because you're cooking, you're cooking large quantities, right? Well, yeah, but I'm just cooking batches and batches. But in the end, I learned something, I think, pretty valuable. As a YouTuber, yes, I'm based in France, I'm based in Paris, but my audience is not. They're based everywhere, in the US, in the UK, in Asia, everywhere. And I do my videos in English for that, because I love connecting with people from everywhere. Then why, when I do my research, should I limit myself right. to available content only, like Westerner content only? I don't have to. I mean, whenever I'm working on an Italian recipe, I always go to google.it. Huh. And I found so much more content. You mean there's a whole other world beyond yes. English YouTube? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> who would have thought? Right? Who would have thought? No, that's actually a really good point because you end up with the, the usual suspects, right? Exactly. Uh, and, and these are often people who are not actually the experts anyway, right? Exactly. So that's so. From yeah. this day on, this is what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to have you know bookmarks in my browser, one for each. Google in each country, and I'm going to be using them. Well, Alex, for Christmas, I'll send you some bath salts for your arm because um, <laughs> it's it's probably really sore right now. But it's a good point if you want uh, if you want the real goods, go to the people who actually know what they're doing. Alex, I news. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. That was YouTube host Alex I news. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or you can order our latest cookbook, which is vegetables. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tereski. Production assistant, Amelia McGuire. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>